Hi, and welcome to the Lifefulness Podcast, which is dedicated to helping you live your life as fully as possible through lifefulness. Uh, I'm your host, Sanderson Jones. I'm your co-host, James Croft. And lifefulness adapts the techniques of spiritual communities and congregations in a way that is secular, inclusive, and evidence-based. I'm the director of the Lifefulness Project and the co-founder of Sunday Assembly, a worldwide network of secular congregations. And I'm the leader of the Ethical Society of St. Louis, one of the largest humanist congregations in America. On the Life on This podcast, we interview brilliant people who can give you uh, and us insights into how to adapt the best parts of spirituality and congregations so that it works for everyone. Because we need to go deeper to tackle the problems we're facing today. So let's get life on. Hooray! Today, we are talking with Matthew Paris, a celebrated British writer, broadcaster, and former Conservative Party Member of Parliament. Like me, he studied at Cambridge before hopping the Atlantic to study in America, though he made the mistake of going to Yale. That's James's not-so-subtle way of letting everyone know he went to Harvard. Yes, I went to the other Cambridge as well. I, I went the right place. Oh, mate. But unlike me, Matthew Paris soon went into politics and served as Member of Parliament for the West Derbyshire constituency before turning to punditry. Matthew has written for The Times newspaper and The Spectator magazine and has written countless books, seriously tons, check them all out. Most recently, Scorn, The Wittiest and Wickedest Insults in Human History. Our discussion with him, though, is pretty much insult-free, however. I'm not sure whether that's a recommendation or not, Sanderson. Uh, Yeah, I mean, hate sells, James, hate sells. Maybe we should have got more insults in there. I was really excited to speak with Matthew because he's been an openly gay public figure in the United Kingdom for almost 20 years. And when I was growing up, there were far fewer openly gay public figures, especially in politics. And Matthew Paris was a standout and I loved listening to what he had to say. I think you'll love this conversation too because we dig deep into topics which are central to lifefulness. Matthew's thoughts on religion, his response to the crisis of truth we're all living through right now, and our search for authenticity and meaning. While I don't always agree with everything he has to say, I've always appreciated Matthew's respect for dialogue, his willingness to disagree with his own side, which is something so important in these tribal times. Matthew knows a lot about that because he lost his own tribe when he left the Conservative Party over his opposition to Brexit. And there's a particular part which I really loved, which is a recollection of a man called Paul Methuen, who uh, back in the 60s showed Matthew really how he could live a happy life as a gay man. And I think that's a story which says a lot about how we shape our lives. So we really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we do. Welcome to the Lifefulness podcast. We're uh, interviewing uh, Matthew Paris today. Matthew Paris is a renowned uh, broadcaster, commentator. You were an MP before and uh, in, in this podcast, what we're going to do is uh, it's all about living life as fully as possible through lifefulness, which is really looking to sort of spiritual practices and seeing how they can be adapted in a way that everyone can take part. And, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe we could kick off just by asking, uh, what was your sort of religious or faith background? Did you have one? I, I should say first that uh, I'm very interested in, in uh, what, what you do and, uh, and what you think and what you believe it it may not be what i do or think or believe and so i shall be perhaps um skeptical in places uh, we'll 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 find out but yes i did i had quite a, a i wouldn't call it a religious upbringing but my mother in particular was very always very very seized of the question what is life for what are we on this planet for how should i live and how should I be? And uh, she went through various religions in her time. Mum, she she tried Catholicism for a few months, but didn't like the ritual. She tried the Anglican Church, but I think found it a bit sort of stiff and and snobbish. And um, she was for many years a Quaker. So when I was a boy in Africa, 
I went, all the family went with her to Quaker meetings on a, mm. on, on a Sunday, the Society of Friends. And I still hold a sort of special place in my heart for, for Quakers and, and for the Quaker approach to things, though I don't really have all the central beliefs. After that, uh, Mum, though, whenever that she was in a town where there was a Quaker meeting would go, became very interested in meditation and in yoga. And uh, she, she would know what you were talking about far more than I probably do. Did that sort of breed more of a curiosity, would you say, or more of a scepticism? I think it bred a, an affection uh, for, for, for those ways of thinking and, and those thinkers who think that the meaning of life matters. Mm. It, it, it bred a scepticism about most of the answers that I've heard from most of them no hostility at all but i think a friendly skepticism is probably the best way of putting it and that's actually one of the reasons that i wanted to uh, speak because like in your writing that sort of comes across often when people are skeptical they're either sort of fully dawkins let's say or if people are defensive about it they you know it's often quite take it or leave it but that's not what's come across in your writing but there was a sort of really specific place i wanted to start which is a mutual friend of ours, I think more mutual friend of yours, uh, a, a great, uh, I met him when he was a grand old man called Paul Methuen. And you oh, wrote, Paul. A, yes. a, and you wrote this amazing article about his life. And I had known him as a you know, friend of my father's towards the end of Paul's life. My, I think uh, his relations would call uh, my father his driver because he'd take him to various social engagements in the borders. Uh, and then reading your article about how you met him and his influence on your life. I'd love it if you could tell that story because it was, there's, there's so much richness in it. Well, as, as he was a friend of your father's, he was a friend of my mother's. Uh, my mother um, started her, her um, adult life as an actress and absolutely loved Shakespeare, uh, always did. And uh, she liked acting herself, but she didn't do very much. Uh, she had six children to look after, but wherever there was Shakespeare, there was my mother. And Paul Methuen lived in Kingston in, in Jamaica when mm. my father's job took him to Kingston for five years. So the whole family were there for five years. Though by then I was away at boarding school and then university. And Paul lived in a, a wonderful old wooden plantation house in downtown Kingston. Downtown Kingston, the area where Paul lived, had once been where the rich plantation owners and the well-to-do lived, but slowly the rich had moved up the hills to the sort of Beverly Hills style area of Kingston. And much of downtown Kingston was pretty downtrodden, but in the middle of it was this magnificent garden and this, this beautiful old house. And Paul used to give the most wonderful dinners. Um, they would go on until late in the night with the, with the fireflies flashing outside and, and all the most interesting people in Kingston would be there. And uh, once or twice, uh, I was invited with, with my mother, or rather my mother was invited with me. And he made a great impression on me. I, I suppose, looking back on it, I, he was probably middle-aged. He must have been in his 50s or, or, or even younger. But he seemed quite an elderly man to me. He was evidently pretty wealthy. He didn't flaunt it. Uh, but but he lived a lifestyle that wouldn't have been possible without without money. Uh, he had enormous style. Uh, he was there was something terrifically tolerant about Paul. It was funny because you know he could express pretty sharp opinions, and sometimes could sound quite prejudiced. But towards human beings, uh, there was just a huge warmth and tolerance. And uh, Paul was was kind to me. I don't suppose he really noticed me very much. He put me in um, one of his productions of uh, of uh, it was the Tempest, and uh, I was uh, Ferdinand, uh, the 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 young uh, inamorato of Miranda, and I was certainly the worst Ferdinand that ever trod the boards. And, and Paul, <laughs> Paul was the best Prospero I have ever seen, and I, I'm not just saying that in a a, a, a slightly exaggerated way. The, the speech, everybody knows the speech about uh, we are the stuff that dreams are made on. Uh, I 
it brings tears to my eyes almost to think of Paul, the way he made that, made that speech. It, it was wonderful and it was him. And he was alone. Uh, we all assumed he was gay. Uh, and I, I still am quite sure he was gay, but he would never quite speak about things like that. He belonged to a generation that didn't. Mm. He was one of the few people I met at that stage in my life when I was perhaps about 18, 19, 20, who showed me that you could be uh, alone and sociable and have lots of friends and, and not be lonely. Um, mm. and, and I've loved Paul ever since and, of course, kept in touch with him until he died a few years ago. And, and there was something in that, uh, one, that, that when you, there's an article that you wrote about uh, him on his, uh, after his death, and it really summed up this. You said there was a moment when you looked at him out at dinner and I, uh, and to go and see someone living a life and it just really, when you, when I read it, it actually brought a tear to my eye mm. because it just conveyed, you know, one of those moments which happen in life where you are able to go and see a future and it sounded like a turning point. Did it, at the time, did it, did it feel like that? Yes, it did. Yes, it did. No, I, I, I thought I could be like that and I would like to be uh, like that because uh, being gay myself and in, in, in no sense out at that time, uh, I, I, I felt I was looking forward to a, a, a life of either celibacy or furtiveness and, and of, of never really fully being, being part of the life that everybody else lived. And Paul made me see that you could. But I, here I come down to, I wouldn't say the scepticism, but let, let me sound a cautionary note. Paul had money. Uh, I don't know how he had the money or where it came from. And as I say, he didn't flaunt it. But it, I'm not sure it would have been the possible to live the life of the, the generous host uh, whom everybody, who, at whose table everybody wanted to dine if you hadn't had the house and the money that Paul had. So, so another thing that I, I resolved uh, then was that um, if I'm going to be a, an old man, I should like to be a rich old man. I, want to, I just want to express how profoundly yeah. this article affected me because I saw so many, much of my own experience in what you wrote. You talk about being an eldest son who is about to go to Cambridge. I'm the eldest son of my parents. I went to Cambridge. I had this sense that being gay separates you off from the larger life of other people that some part of you always has to be secret and you can never live into the fullness of yourself and so having this model of a person who was doing that it, it struck me as a very powerful moment um, and yes I don't know if I have a question I just wanted to express that. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you you know what I'm I'm trying to say yes. The uh, as a uh, sort of tall white man who was six foot when he was thirteen, and then on the rugby team, I'll say that uh, it, it, was, it was a sort of different sense of connection to it. But yes. uh, there, there was, but for me, it's that <laughs> it is that that is that there's something beautiful about those moments that we recognise in life, where as turning points. And there was also something in that article where you were talking about how there was he was leading and teaching without sort of being didactic without having to say anything and i feel i'm slightly taking away from that moment by now <laughs> asking you to sort of teach about it but is that something that because I, I guess when i go and see your life there you're doing a lot of that sort of leadership as well oh is, i don't is, know i don't know okay, oh that. come I, on i i would like to think that uh, that the people that know me and work with me see something in the way the way I am and the way that that I live and 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 think you know perhaps there's perhaps there's something to be learned here but I, I don't I'm not even very happy with the word learning or even with the word teaching uh, example it's it's setting an example is 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 the thing it's the only way yeah uh, what is it that makes you uncomfortable? I mean, this is what I'm really looking forward to having because in all of the, when reading about these things, there was this like wonderful tension between sort of appreciating some parts of the, uh, of what religion does, but then also sort of like looking at it askance. I was really enjoyed your book, The Great Unfrocked, 2000 Years of Church Scandal. 
which sort of really delved into some uh, intriguing characters. I learned the word, well, I didn't learn it, but I hadn't used the word whoredom for a while. Uh, and also malversations. I was like, oh, I've got to use that. It's great. All these 19th century people using, like, going really uh, polysyllabic. Yes. Uh, I, I, I enjoyed writing that book a lot. But one of the chapters that uh, intrigued me most while I was writing it was uh, False Messiahs. Uh, you, you probably remember. I mean, there were some absolutely extraordinary characters with huge self-belief and some kind of a charisma that uh, communicated itself to to their followers looking back on their lives and on their deeds we we, we can see that they were quite often rascals uh, or totally deluded but but that that, that um, they they did they did they did have uh, some kind of a draw and s s some kind of a, a a hold on the lives of the the people who followed them and there is a lesson there for us about about teaching mm. and, and and about messiahs because you know i expect jesus whom i profoundly believe to have been a a good a good man uh, good doesn't begin to sum it up but um, nice chap a nice chap a very nice, <laughs> very nice chap a very decent cove and uh, but but um, you know jesus displayed all the same characteristics as the false messiahs mm. did and and uh, the fact that someone has charisma has draw um, that the, there is is something something sort of strangely moving and appealing about them doesn't always mean either that they're right or even that they're straight. Yeah, there was uh, there's a wonderful story about I can't it's Prince Piggott Smith maybe this uh, there were some uh, a couple of messiahs down in Somerset at yes, least yes. in the 19th yeah. century who sort of set themselves up, they were both vicars, set themselves up in an enormous uh, country house which they ended up moving into because he found a family of rich daughters, married them off to his followers, and then their family members tried to take them out. And whenever they got taken out, they would go to court and they'd say, no, can we go back into the, uh, go back to live with the Messiah, please? Yes, yes. And then there was that other one also in the West Country, I think, who had a huge revolving bed made and um, some of his women followers would would, would uh, line themselves, not line themselves, but spread themselves round the bed as though they were the minute hand and the hour hand and the second hand, etc. And, and the, the bed would be spun like a roulette wheel and he would sleep that night with the, the one who turned up um, opposite him. Was... I can I can somehow picture that being shot by uh, Busby Berkeley, <laughs> with sort of various people falling off in a really yes. ninety in a nineteen twenties way. Yes. And so I suppose then, having again, you've gone and done the research in this area. Part of our project is trying to make sure that we avoid the yes. pitfalls. Like, what would you say are the pitfalls you see in people who are? sort of engaging in these spiritual communities and sort of, uh, you know, trying to encourage them to uh, spread. I've never come under the spell of uh, anybody like this, but so I, far, so we've far. still got another 40 minutes, <laughs> <Yes>. Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, I have found, uh, I have found with friends, some of whom are more intelligent and more discerning than me, that uh, it is quite possible for a highly intelligent person to come under the spell of someone who is really basically a fraud. Mm. One of the great things about my mother was that, that she, she did, for all her kindness and openness and tolerance and charity, uh, she could see through people. Mm. And uh, she fell for a while under the spell of that Maharishi, whatever, oh, in, really? uh, in India. And she actually went out to uh, his whatever it's called. I can't remember. Rajneesh Param, um, I think. I don't think it was him. No, it was another one. Okay. Anyway, we'd better, better not libel anybody. They might be alive. But, but she <laughs> went out to the Akram or Shokram or whatever it is. And, and, and she saw she saw that there was something not quite right about this. And she saw all the rich American ladies who are coming out as, uh, as well and how, he, how they were parting with their, their money. So uh, I think a lot of people have ulterior motives and uh, the ability uh, not only to spot an ulterior motive, but to never to put entirely out of your mind the possibility that somebody might have an ulterior motive. I think that's quite important.
Yeah, that's one of the things that I think about of how you like even when you're sort of talking about these ideas, like one of the things that people really love is certainty. You know, this feeling yeah. like in this world of questions and trying to figure it out, being in front of someone who can say, no, this is the way. Oh, what a relief from all of that thinking. Yes. And then, and actually it can be quite good from a sense of community because like it turns out that some things which are really good for community are really bad for uh, people within the community, such as cutting like questioning like cutting off questioning cutting off people from their family uh cutting them off from outside influences and so it is that thing of like how to make sure that in reimagining spiritual communities you go and make that questioning a part of it yes but, uh, and the you know, distinction or, between a community and a cult um is a it's a it's a fuzzy line between the two but we have to uh, yeah, mark mark the important difference between the one and the other. The uh, I, I, sometimes during Sunday assembly, people would say, "Is it a cult?" and and I'd have the really unreassuring answer of, "Technically, it's not a cult, because there are apparently some sort of technical definitions of what is a cult, where you, it's there's an unquestioned leadership, you get cut off from your family, but whenever you have to use the word technically in front of something, uh, yes. it's not the most reassuring." Uh, it can be. Uh, one of the questions that I uh, really wanted to speak to you about was because like what, one of the hopes that we have for this is that often these spiritual communities and congregations, they can have a really uh, amazing power at you know, making people realize that they do have something in common and that maybe some of the, tribe, the tribes that they might see themselves as part of well, actually, they've got a greater truth which links them. And, and I suppose one of the things that you've experienced recently uh, with regards to Brexit is that you had to leave your tribe, the Conservative Party, or did the tribe leave you? And so what was that like? Uh, like what lessons have you learned from sort of losing that connection? Um, I, I learned that once you've left a tribe, you realise how much more tribal you were when you were in it than, than you had thought. Although I've always mm. been a conservative and I, I still am, though perhaps with a lowercase c now. Uh, and I'd always. Oh, by the way, I did refer to your, your small c-ness uh, in the email, and that just sort of made me yes. laugh because I'd never used yes. that before. And anywho, carry on. And, and <laughs> I, 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 ever since I left school, um, I'd, I'd been a a latent at least conservative and and remained so and still remain so and i owe an awful lot to the conservative party that my my first big break was working for chris patton in the conservative research department then working for margaret thatcher as her letter writer in her office and uh, the local conservatives here in derbyshire took a big risk when they selected me only 29 as as their candidate and and upon that was built my political career. And though I wasn't in the end a great politician, upon my political career has been built my media career. And I've known and worked with and for many conservatives whom I admire very much. John John Major was, was certainly one of them. And I, I, I quite admire David Cameron as well. And, and Margaret Thatcher too, in her way. But, but I had always thought that, okay, that's them, that's that tribe. I am uh, nominally a member of it, I pay my subs, but I'm not really, I'm not really a part of any tribe. I stand uh, a little apart from, from that sort of tribalism. Always believed it. But when, when I left, uh, the moment I had left, I am immediately began to catch myself talking about we meaning the conservatives and not just talking about we but thinking we meaning the conservatives and I thought of all the friends I have in Derbyshire whom I'd known through the party and and who had become personal friends as as well as fellow members of the party but but now wondered what were, the, were those relationships over how would it affect those relationships and even now uh, when I hear the word uh, conservative or when I see some conservative politician whom I respect or admire, I feel a, a sense of pride and a sense of co-membership of something with them. So, so tribalism, I think, goes much deeper and can be mm. rooted much deeper than those in the tribe 
realize at the time. And then have you like been able to sort of think about, you know, like we're so divided at the moment, like what are, you know, are there, have you seen people who are doing things which sort of seem to cross these tribes? Is there, you know, are we going to get ever more fragmented or like, yeah, do you have any sense that there is a, a next stage in that? No, I don't see any next stage, really. I, I, I think uh, I, I think the fragmentation, the polarization, will probably continue. I think it may get worse, and I I, I observe in uh, in in political commentary certainly, and in 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 the world of political discussion, that if you don't belong to any group, to any party. While that may give you a certain freedom to float above things, it also means that nobody quite trusts you as one of their own. And everybody thinks of you as someone who hasn't, in the end, really been able to make up their mind, hasn't really been able to decide what mask to pin their colours to. Uh, th that has always been the case through, through my life in politics. I, I'm afraid I, I don't see it changing. Do you genuinely think that that's a bad thing? I wonder whether, I know that there's a lot of concern within political commentary, particularly about polarization and the so-called kind of tribalism of our political discourse. I wonder whether that can sometimes be good, whether it actually clarifies moral distinctions and moral arguments that it's important for society to have, which a sense of, in it togetherness kind of papers over for a while. Uh, I note that you wrote what I thought was an excellent article in praise of statue toppling, which is not a position I think that many people would have necessarily assumed you would have taken. And it seems to me that these actions are actually giving us a sense of moral clarity as a community. They may be highly polarizing, but sometimes isn't it necessary to polarize a community to evoke what's important in its values? Yes, I think it is, James. I think, and th that's the reason, just as I, 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 I don't necessarily rule out the adversarial method of politics or the adversarial method of the House of Commons or the adversarial method by which we try people for uh, alleged criminal uh, uh, acts. It, 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 it can be, as you say, clarifying um, if we divide into two teams and the one team uh, says everything that could be said in favour of a proposition and the other team are motivated to say everything that can be said or thought against it and uh, and then some kind of synthesis sometimes not always is found but with, without thesis and antithesis I'm sounding like a Marxist. You don't always get. Uh, you don't <laughs> well, always get a, synthesis. <laughs> what a revelation that would be! <laughs> Matthew Paris's final uh, heel turn. Yeah. Hey there, guys. We're going to have a quick break from that uh, interview to tell you about this awesome competition that we are launching for the start of the Lifefulness Podcast. Now, as you know, the or maybe you don't know, but I'll tell you again, uh, the life on this project is we're totally dedicated to adapting the lessons of spiritual communities in a way that everyone can take part. And someday in the future, we hope that it is easy to find a life on this community in your town as it is to find a yoga class or a meditation teacher. And the podcast is our first sort of public offering in that way and so we'd love you to share it as much as possible because it really helps us do the work that we're doing. Now I know that you are the nicest person in the world and the moment you hear this you're just going to go and share it anyway. You've probably already shared it, you've probably already entered the competition uh, but for the people who also liked that thrill of the chase, that desire to go and win prizes, then there's also this cool competition. And these are the prizes. The first prize is a day-long personal transformation workshop done online, led by James and I. I'm a trained coach. James is a trained minister. And uh, yeah, so that will leave you feeling super lifeful. And then there is a culture change workshop uh, is the second prize for your company, non-profit or community. Go and discover why uh, I have been invited in by Apple, The Body Shop, Selfridges, many other people to go and do culture change work with them. So that is the second prize. And then with the third prize, because we really want everyone to have a crack at winning, 
coming, there is uh, there are 10 Lifefulness Talks that I will do. It's not going to be 10 in one company. It's probably overkill. Uh, so uh, then I'll go in and deliver a Lifefulness Talk in your company uh, due to the situation we're in at the moment. Uh, these will be virtual prizes. Uh, but like this has got a, a lot of value in them. And we estimate over £5,000 there that you've got an opportunity of winning. So now you're thinking, ah, oh, how do I enter? And so the thing you've got to go to is lifefulness.io forward slash podcast. And that is .io as in I only listen to this because I'm being forced to. Uh, and so you're at lifefulness.io forward slash podcast and you find this box that you enter, you go and, and then when you do it, you go and put your email address in. And then for every different activity that you do, you go and get entered another time in the competition. So the more you share, the, I haven't yet got a good rhyme for it. And so you can subscribe to the newsletter, subscribe to the podcast, follow us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, leave a review. And for each one of those things that you do, you get another entry into this. And then if you go and share the prize on Facebook, share the competition on Facebook and someone else enters guess what? It's like a pyramid scheme. You also go and get extra points when they join in. So look, we think we've got some really great prizes. We really hope that you are able to uh, enter and go and take part. And thanks so much. I think I've taken up enough of your time, even though it's been a pretty good read. If you're listening, Squarespace or, uh, you know, Blue Apron or any of the other ones, give us a call. Uh, And uh, there we go. Back to the podcast. I suppose one of the things which has like around, you know, there's that thing of thesis synthesis. I think one of the issues that at the moment is that you know, there can't really be thesis and synthesis because people are arguing from such different places. That thing of, yes. you know, there's no shared sense of common facts. You know, alternative facts are rampant. Uh, and yeah, so I guess that's the thing which I'm really sitting with. Of, yes, it- well, you're right. Um, uh, you know, you can reach a stage of polarization where there, there's no possibility of anything positive or creating coming creative coming from the the process. However, I, I read and hear quite often about these alternative facts and how uh, people uh, are now only looking for for, uh, for for tweets and for social media posts and for facts and for arguments and for news that supports their side of the argument. Yes, and how the social media can, uh, to some extent, accelerate this because the social media tends to send us the things we we want to receive and not to send us the things we don't. But at the end of the day, human beings are animals and an animal which is unable to perceive danger or an animal which persists in seeing things as they always saw them and as they want to see them uh, and and is unaware or unable in their in their mind to entertain other possibilities is weakened by that and an animal is strengthened if while pursuing one course it can always entertain the possibility that the course is is wrong so uh, i i feel a sort of optimism that human beings in the end are not going to divide into two groups with two sets of facts and nothing to say to each other and no interest at all in the evidence that the other side may provide. One part of our brains, I think, must always be um, on the lookout for the possibility that we are wrong. And uh, to the extent that we can do that, we are stronger people and more likely to succeed in life. I mean, and, you know, if you do, we live in a a climate where sort of ignoring the facts uh, (laughs) might genuinely lead to you dying in a way that has not previously been been true. but then I guess a lot of the sort of the research around that in in some ways uh, you know, shows that that isn't the case, that we're sort of really drawn to things which don't challenge us and which where we do get to agree with other people. And Yes, uh, but, but I think this is evolutionary. Um, you're talking about confirmation bias, really, mm. and confirmation bias is an important part of, of uh, the, the human... Uh, the, the, the way humans see the world, um, and and it is often in conflict with that other side of our natures that has a scepticism and is looking out for danger, and is looking out for the possibility that uh, the 
the, the thesis that we're pursuing is wrong. Both are inescapable parts of human nature and they are in conflict with each other. Confirmation bias is important for any animal because we are herd creatures in, in many ways. And um, also, you know, when, once any animal has um, embarked on a course of action, it's quite impossible, it's quite, it's quite important that the, the animal persists with the course of action uh, and, and doesn't start faltering halfway and wondering if it's doing the right thing. So that, that sort of gravitational thing that keeps us stuck to the course we were already on is important from the evolutionary point of view. But equally important from the evolutionary point of view is, as I say, that other eye out for the possibility that uh, we are not right. Yeah, there, there's a, I think it's Jonathan Haidt who said that a good way to think about the mind is less as a scientist and more as a lawyer that mm. your body knows what it wants to do and then tells you and then you tell the world that that's the right thing to do and uh, you know but it but you're a more convincing lawyer if you really believe that if you really believe it and you believe you've attained it by looking at right and wrong yes yes i wonder i was thinking uh, just back to that question of the kind of breakdown of our common bedrock of truth and i'm really glad to hear that you are optimistic that that kind of finding the truth and using that as a common ground for public discourse and politics etc is going to still be a part of human culture i live in the united states and right now i look at where the us is kind of politically and culturally particularly with something like covid where even the science behind mask wearing has become deeply politicized the polls show stark yes. differences between republicans and democrats on whether they even believe that it will help stop the spread of the virus and that seems to me as empirical as you can get right that sorts of should be the sort of thing which everyone should be able to agree on particularly because it is a matter of life and death to some degree and yet it is highly politicized so i wonder i just want to kind of see if i can shake your confidence in that i feel, feel that the united states might be a bit of a cautionary tale which the uk might be trending towards and i wonder if you feel like we can pull back from the brink a bit yeah, interesting, interesting question. The US has definitely gone further down the road that I also see us going down in Britain a bit um, in this polarization, in this confirmation bias. But but you get, you cite a good example, the wearing of masks, you know, does it help or doesn't it? We haven't yet gone so far, either in Britain or in the United States, as to be uninterested uh, in evidence. Uh, we, we approach the evidence with our own biases and inclination to believe one set of data rather than another. But we still do believe that the evidence matters. And I, I don't think there could be many Americans, those who believe in masks or those who don't believe in masks, who would be uninterested uh, in a, an objective scientific experiment to see how the COVID-19 is transmitted and to what degree um, its transmission can be interrupted by, by the wearing of masks. I, I think almost any American would be interested in that experiment, even if it brought them unwelcome news. I'm, uh, I don't know if you've ever been on anti-vax Reddit or anti-vax Twitter, where yes, that a is, little bit. Hmm. yeah, where you go and see that, again, like those things which you would assume are you know, like uh, any right-thinking human would look at can suddenly be twisted around and gone and be shown to be in a totally different light. One, uh, I'm thinking back to a piece that you wrote about, uh, you know, like uh, about the effect of Christianity in Africa, about how, you know, this new belief system was able to go and sort of enable there to be more cohesion in some societies which were sort of uh, very different, and obviously there's a huge amount of politics around that and all the rest of it, is going back to the theme which we started is, I mean, do you see uh, like a potential for any sort of movement around that? So you can still have, it doesn't remove differences, but maybe goes and helps people feel like some level of connection? I don't, I don't think you've uh, entirely characterized what what I've said about Christianity, correctly characterize what I've said about 
Christianity in I'm, Africa. I'm almost I'm, certainly <laughs> right. You're almost certainly right. <laughs> I've, I've brought my probably brought some confirmation bias to it, no, no. Uh, <laughs> which is helping me to pursue my goal. Well, I, I, I think <laughs> you're you're trying to be positive, um, and <laughs> in, in a sense, I was making the more negative point that Christianity can play a very useful role in breaking tribal uh, and traditional beliefs. That tribal and traditional beliefs uh, can be very deleterious, very, very crushing, very damaging. Uh, to the individual and and also to the life chances of, of society and that christianity by replacing one set of superstitions uh with another set of superstitions that are not quite so damaging not nearly so 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 damaging to 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 the uh, to, to the human psyche to the human soul um, plays an important role as it were in 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 breaking people's reliance on uh, a, a set of beliefs, the beliefs that people, animist beliefs that people often have in rural Africa and ancestor worship, in breaking that set of relief, uh, uh, beliefs, and in that sense, liberating the individual uh, from one tribe by bringing him into another tribe where I, I, I would argue the beliefs are actually less constraining and can be uh, creatively uh, more positive. Oh, no, I would sorry. I'd, I'd say that that's sorry that but that but I, I in some ways I go and look at the tribes that we're in at the moment mm. and, and see that they're, you know, your characterization of them, that some are unhelpful, some, uh, you know, do not have the closest connection to evidence, whatever it might be, but that might also be there might also be a worldview or some sort of uh, uh, some sort of way of connecting people which could go to the next level there's a you know i've heard people call it the larger like a larger us of like expanding people's idea of who is in the tribe might be one way not to sort of say we're ever going to get rid of tribalism but yeah that is one of the things which i uh, often when people go and I often find a characterization of Christianity or Islam of looking at oh, people look to the Crusades and look at those points of friction where like all some awful uh, crimes happened, like the particularly around uh, Jews and, you know, various massacres on all sides. But to my mind, that sort of shows that actually there's in Christendom and in Islam, actually there was this sense that these guys are our tribe. You know, there were still wars, but they were of a different nature to when people came together who really saw themselves as separate. So I guess that is, you know, that's one of the things which I'm really trying to explore with this. Of like, mm. how can we have a more expansive sense of of us? And I, I don't have the answer to it, but that's a, a thing that we're exploring. Uh, and then I suppose I'd like to go on to a more sort of... I was just, I was just, James was just saying something. Oh, sorry, know. sorry. Yeah, good, James, to... thank you very much, James. <laughs> I, no, no, not at all. I, I, I was just interested that you would say as a gay man, like speaking as gay men together for a second, that the introduction of Christianity into Africa has kind of replaced one set of superstitions with another. It, it seems to me that there might be more positive. It, it seems to me that some of the superstitions of Christianity have been very negative in terms of the assumptions about homosexuality that are now present pre prevalent yeah. across Africa which weren't always part of traditional African theologies and religious practices that they've kind of been brought in and things like the Catholic churches opposing the distribution of condoms to prevent AIDS for many 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 decades which has contributed profoundly to the AIDS crisis in Africa it seems to me that those aren't so good things i mean i i don't have a huge amount of knowledge of african culture myself we support some humanist schools in africa and i do see that they have to fight against some traditional beliefs that are very dehumanizing like beliefs in witchcraft they often have to teach their children that there's no such thing as witches and that you shouldn't treat certain women abominably because they're seen to be witches so i do see there are some maladaptive beliefs there and dehumanizing beliefs but i feel like christianity has its own baggage and that by imposing it on Africa, it's caused a lot of problems well, as well. Uh, uh, two, two, my reply would be uh, on on two fronts. A, you're absolutely right. Christianity brings, has brought terrible baggage with this, with it, not just on homosexuality or, or contraception, but in in so many other areas too. I I wouldn't begin to disagree, uh, with that, uh, but African tribal society has very deeply 
uh, rooted antipathy to homosexuality as well. And African tribal society has very deep-rooted attachment to the idea that procreation, human procreation, is good, always good, um, and, 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 and should not be discouraged. So in that sense, I, th I, th I think I'm afraid that Christianity went with the grain of African tribal society, or rather Catholicism goes with the grain of African tribal society on contraception, and Christianity and Islam go with the grain of African tribal society on homosexuality. The, uh... Uh, slightly, uh, again, as someone who was probably not the best person to dive into uh, the uh, various belief, African tribal beliefs, not my area of specialty, uh, like a part of this, a uh, big part of this podcast is like this idea of like helping people to get, get delving into questions to help people live life as fully as possible. Uh, I, I suppose that's what uh, I would uh, ask, uh, ask you of, oh, Wonderful, a cup of well. I mean, this Here we are. Yes, this to me summarizes a key part of living life as fully as possible. <laughs> Cups of tea appearing uh, from uh, from off screen. My mm. wife uh, just came in and uh, just picked up some papers. Not a cup of tea was proffered in the slightest. <laughs> there, uh, the I will uh, send notes and also, guys, uh, for all of the complaints, Sanderson at lifefulness.io. Uh, there we go. Uh, and so, yeah, what does uh, living life as fully as possible mean to you? I think it's too large a question. Um, I, I don't quite know what, what the word life means, um, from which is derived living. Um, I'd, as I've got older, I have um, grown out of or grown away from the idea that the more things you do and the more things you experience and the more worlds you inhabit, the better. Um, I, I don't believe in the have it all sort of life any any longer. Um, I should have liked children. Says the man who's just been given a cup of tea yes. out of the <laughs> blue. Oh, you yes. can talk. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but you know, I, I would have liked children in another life. Mm. I, I would like children if there were another life and I don't think there is. But I don't. I I don't actually see the life that I have, um, li living it as I I must is easily compatible either with having children or indeed with having a dog. Although I like dogs, but I have to move from one place to another. So I am no longer in my life looking for as many diverging um, ways of living as possible. Uh, and, and I think um, you know, in Voltaire's words, to cultivate your garden uh, is. It, it, can be quite an important part of living life to the full using full in a rather different sense from wide yeah I, well that's one of the reasons why i really like that question is and the cup to go back to the cup of tea is that like sometimes like just tea like having a cup of tea like even when not much is going on it can just be so deeply satisfying and there's when the stars are aligning and you've got this little moment to contemplate I think those moments can be just as full as, you know, this idea of, you know, particularly in this Instagram uh, world of the things which look good, the things that you want to tell people about and all the rest of it. Uh, to me, I, I've, I've most often found happiness in work. Um, I like to be absorbed in a task and uh, I, I think you're never happier than when you haven't even time to ask yourself whether you're happy or not you're just completely absorbed in something that you're you're doing that 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 is happiness that is living life to the full and what's that sort of what would you say that the sort of value is behind that what is you know what drives you when you're doing your work because you've got to have a huge motive force when in order to go and sort of focus on those uh on work like that I don't think you do have to have a few huge don't you? force. We, we, are anim we are animals, and an animal's nature is, is to do things. If, if you're a sheep or a llama, you, 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 you just graze furiously. You just munch grass furiously all day because that's what you do. And, and, and I, I, I think any, any evolved animal ha has evolved to absorb itself in the necessary tasks for its survival and creation and in that a, a kind of instinctive happiness is found and that humans are no different 
Yeah, I will. Uh, uh, th th my own sort of personal area of that is that like two years ago, I got diagnosed with ADHD, which means that sort of getting fully absorbed in tasks can be a uh, has been something that I have sort of actually really struggled with and uh, of like finding, uh, you know, I'd go and find something and for a while it could just go either you go and find one thing that you can utterly focus on, but then there'll be other things that you really want to do. And then sometimes, like for me, I'd be like, I really want to do this. I can do it. I like doing it. And yet, you know, there's, but there's biochemical reasons why that is not as much as a given in other, in other areas. And then sometimes I'll find a project and I'll just go right into it. So it, yeah. is, it is, so that's why when I, like for me, that isn't a natural thing. What's your experience, James? I think that I'm somewhere in between both of you. I look at your career, Matthew, and I feel like you've done so much and you've worked in so many different fields and kind of excelled in them that I think that there must be, not everybody works that hard. I mean, yes, I do believe that the human organism has a desire to express its powers and to grow. I mean, I find my desire is to always be growing and learning more things. I think that's kind of what drives me. But I, I do note that not, not everybody dedicates themselves to writing so many articles and books and going into politics. I mean, it, you've taken some risks in your career, even just to become a politician is a risk. And I wonder, there's, I feel like there must be a desire to achieve something behind that but maybe maybe i'm kind of putting my own psychology onto you uh, well i'm paid james i'm i'm paid to write but you're not paid articles. that much to be and, an uh, mp though I... let's be honest <laughs> i'm not paid to do this podcast <laughs> uh, yeah yeah that is definitely true it's uh, this is uh, this is, uh, right now i just really want to thank your motive oh, force whatever whichever way it might go yeah no, I, there's a little cash register in my mind when I'm doing my uh, most of my broadcasting and, and and my writing that goes ping when I've finished another article, and you know that's that's another fee, and you know that's another flight to our cave house in Spain or a, a nice stone table for the garden or something like that. Uh, I, the p pursuit, if not of money, at least of the the means of getting things that you want, can be a wonderful focusing thing in life mm. and can contrary to a, an awful lot of folk wisdom bring a lot of pleasure well that's interesting because it seems to me it brings us kind of back to where we began with the vision of life that paul methian kind of provided you with it seems like you have kind of pursued that vision uh, very successfully yes very i've just had enormous luck I, now that's something that n n none of the three of us have talked about and that is good fortune mm. there is such a thing as good fortune in life and 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 it it isn't uh you know there's the the old saying it's uh it's not what luck you have it's it's what you make of it kind of thing i don't really believe some people do have um good luck some have bad luck some people make nothing of their good luck some people make something of it some people are knocked down by their bad luck and never get up again other people just keep trying and eventually make it but i, I am a, i'm conscious of many um, moments in my life when I was just lucky and I mean just lucky nothing to do with judgment nothing to do with anything but sheer good fortune and um, well I, it, it has a lot of explanatory power in in what you might call a happy or successful life yeah I think we that is one of the hardest things for humans to understand yes. is that you like we're all at the we're all at the roulette table. Yes. And we're like, if you go and look at a, like it's so often, a, you know, the, the distribution of success in a, in journalism, in Silicon Valley, in comedy, you know, there's the people at the pointy end get so much more. And once you're there, you go and get more rewards. And, and there's, but there's so many talented people. I'm sure, you know, many talent journalists who, you think oh yeah would be de deserving of so much more yes but that's just not the way the cards were dealt that's it that's but so much the case and i i always felt with with margaret thatcher whom as i say i i enormously admired in in lots of ways but i think that one of the most offensive ways in which uh, sh she was completely wrong was that her instinct was always to think that the people who've done well 
have worked harder and deserved it. And the people who've done badly must have been neglectful in some way to, to have done badly and, and, and not to consider whether some people have just been lucky and others unlucky. Yeah, it's... Uh, we yes, want to believe in merit, don't we? And, and it's quite important for us to believe that merit brings rewards. And it's quite important for us to believe that uh, demerit uh, uh, brings penalties. Uh, but, but, but that can't be the only explanation. I wonder how that affects your politics, because it seems to me that if once you give up the idea that success is directly related to merit, then we have to have a different conception of justice, it seems to me, because it isn't true that the people who work hardest always get to the top of society. And if that's the case, then surely we have to organise society so that it tries to be fair to the effort that people are putting in, at the very least. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. But, but here I... I do the same as you did a while ago. I'm sort of halfway between the two positions. I, I, th I think I think that um, effort and, and and merit are connected with success, and it's very important to reward effort and and reward merit and to have a high regard for them. And and I think that lack of effort or um, moral defects or defects of any kind in a person are connected with lack of success, and we we, we shouldn't try and hide from that. But we should we should also recognise that uh, it, those are not the only factors, and that good luck and bad luck are factors. And so we have to find a, a balance. And America, in its political philosophy, has found one balance. The European countries, in theirs, have found a slightly different balance uh, between rewarding uh, success or rewarding merit and respecting it, and 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 still being mindful. Of, of of those who, for one reason or another, have have um, not not found it. Uh, we are getting to the end of our, our time. Are luckily just on this podcast. Uh, and uh, one thing that we uh, we didn't actually do it last time, but we want to do it going uh, in the future is to, I suppose, looking at these different conversations we've had about sort of tribalism, and then also. Uh, you know about finding these whether it be finding these moments in uh, our life which can guide us and even things like luck or work like are there any sort of you know if you're to sort of like go and have a, a takeaway from that or things that that you've specifically learned that people might find useful it's not teaching by the way just be really clear <laughs> there uh, the things which are interesting to you which might be of interest to other people you know that the trouble is I can only think of um, some rather negative negative things um, uh, I, I've, I've always believed in politics and more widely in life the old adage give a man enough rope and he'll hang himself is profoundly true and that we we shouldn't waste too much of our time trying to bring down people that we think deserve to be brought down because in the end they will bring themselves down but i i don't think that's a very uplifting note on which to to end our our conversation i you know i mean i suppose we could turn it into a uh don't uh, uh, don't concentrate on the people who uh, you dislike and go and celebrate the people that you do like. Well, you say one of your negative things, and I'll put it through the Instagram positivity. Form All right. Filter, yes, you've done that. And very, we'll go and you've done that very well. <laughs> there would be just one other, which re actually just relates to what we were saying for a moment. I am a child in a way of the 1960s, and uh, we were talking about youth and. And, and the younger years are earlier on. And I used to love Joan Baez. I still love Joan Baez. And um, her song there, But For Fortune Go You Or I, is just so true. And, and I do think that if you could just keep that, that song, almost hear her voice in your mind um, as, you, as you go through life, I, 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 I don't think you could do worse. Um, I don't think you could do better than always re remember the, the importance of good fortune. For, for every success that you have. Well, there we go. You went and sort of, you managed to do it at the end there. We should fade uh, out. Hey. We should fade out to Joan Baez's. <laughs> Joan Baez. <laughs> or, or the sh 
all the shonky version we can get on uh, on rights free. Yeah. Uh, hey, are there any sort of particular projects that you're working on that you want to direct people to? Uh, bearing in mind that you've got a far larger audience than us, it's slightly perverse to do this, but you know, every little helps. <laughs> well, um, you know, we were talking about what makes what what is happiness and what brings happiness, and and I was saying to be absorbed in a task and. Uh, one of the last big tasks in my life, I'm 70. Now, I have a longish drive to the to the house, which is just a dirt track. And um, I want to pave it. I, I want to uh, pave it with stone flags. And I'm beginning to buy the stone flags now. And of course, I'm not as strong as I was, I can barely lift some of them. But I, I if and when I retire, when I, I retire, I just wanted to dedicate myself completely to paving that drive in 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 stone flags, as I say, uh, the greatest happiness is found in absorption, in in a task. And so I'm going to set myself a task and absorb myself in it. Well, thank you so much. Uh, well, I think we we can wrap it up there, and we can just get more like it slightly. Uh, yeah, that was great. I, I really loved that conversation and. Uh, thanks so much for the, uh, we, we certainly haven't brought, uh, asked people on to just go and parrot the party line. And so uh, I've enjoyed, enjoyed the back and forth and, uh, and just thanks so much for your time. Well, I just you, really appreciate you, you it. Don't, um, you don't speak or behave as though there was a party line. So you've made it very easy. Thank you. What a lovely little chat. Uh, I absolutely had a blast during that. Uh, Matthew, oh God, Matthew, oh, Matthew, now, now we're on first name terms, uh, is uh, yeah, such a fascinating guy and so lovely and warm. And that story, I think, you know, I'd go on about it, like that story of Paul Matthew and really do go and look it up in The Spectator. It was just wonderful to go and dig a bit deeper on that. I, you know, those moments when we go and realise what our lives are about and uh, those moments where we go and see a way ahead that they're always so powerful. I could bloody munch on that all day. I also quite liked it when he, he said that I wasn't, uh, you know, trying to be too pushy or I wasn't trying to, like, go and push a company line. I think that's what he said. And, yeah, that felt uh, that felt good because sometimes I do. Like, this idea of lifefulness is so close to my heart. That I'm a bit like, I don't, don't want to be the the uber drum banger yeah and so as with these outros i'm going to use them to like not only talk about the community about how the lifefulness uh project goes a bit deeper than this but then also doing it as a bit of a reflection of uh the build-up to the podcast so uh after the first podcast, so like gone back 10 weeks before the launch. And so this is about eight weeks before the launch, something like that. So we launched on at the start of September and this was at the end of June and it was totally awesome. The Lifefulness Project was cooking with gas. The podcast gave this insane focus. Uh, I was, as I'll mention before, I got ADHD and when things are firing right, it was bang, 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 bang. It was just super satisfying. I also had started with a new therapist. And what was quite interesting is it's not the first person I've gone to in a the caring profession, in the personal development realm, who when I meet them and I'm everything's going smoothly, it's just like, oh, well, look here, mate. There's uh, I feel a bit bad coming to you because everything's fine. But the whole point about doing this work is I know that I can be a bit cyclical and I'd also looking back on things I had a sort of meeting with a co-founder and a potential co-founder which is actually an idea I've slightly gone off turned away from uh, since you know in actually in the lead up to the podcast and we'll go into that a bit more and yeah so that's where I was sort of about two months before launch everything is uh, really crushing it uh, and again at this uh, two months before launch we didn't really have an idea of what the community side of this would be obviously everyone who's listening to the podcast is part of the community but yeah, there was this idea of like, how can this podcast go and lead to greater connections? And now what we're doing is we're starting these lifefulness small groups. And yeah, they are 
sort of it's twice a month uh, on at 8 p.m. on a Wednesday. Yeah, it's an opportunity to go and create real connections with people. They're going to begin online, but the idea is that they will become in person as soon as there is that critical mass in a town or a village or probably not a village that'd be we'd really have to be doing well if these small groups are nailing it in villages uh in in person but dream big and yeah it's a way of sort of putting these ideas into practice and i suppose going back to that idea of uh yeah, that there isn't, uh, whenever I was doing Sunday Assembly, there's always this accusation, oh, it's just a cult. Hopefully that uh, endorsement, it's not really an endorsement from Matthew Paris, but, you know, really trying to learn the best things from spiritual communities, but also keeping an eye open to things which haven't worked well in the past. So sounds a bit defensive adding that in, but I'm going to do it anyway, because just because. Uh, so that's it. That is wrapping up. As ever, if you're listening to this in close to the podcast launch, please do share, subscribe, all of that. Tell your friends. Tell people you don't like. Uh, maybe it'll change them. They'll become nicer. Yeah, thanks so much for listening. It means so much. We're loving doing it. And I just want to say thanks to everyone who was involved in this. Thank you to uh, Matthew Paris, the amazing. Uh, thanks to James Croft, my brilliant co-host. You're the best, James. Also, thanks to our producer, Mavs Shetty. Thanks to Will Andrews for the artwork. And thanks to the incredible Roman Rapak and Miro Shot for our banging music. See you next time. <laughs>